and welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and for those joining us for the first time, welcome. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term is used in conversations around race and racism and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of white racial identity at our current juncture here in Britain. From Brexit to BLM via decolonize the curriculum and the place of those statues, understanding race has never felt more urgent. I'm lucky enough to be joined by some incredible contributors who can help us shine a light on what the term means to them and whether it's a useful addition to the anti-racism arsenal. In this episode, I'm joined by a man who's been invested in these conversations long before they made headline news. A pioneer of the study of whiteness here in the UK, David Gilborn is Professor of Critical Race Studies and Founding Director of the Centre for Research in Race and Education at the University of Birmingham. When the centre was launched in 2013, CRRE, as it's known, was England's only university-based research centre that put racism in education at the heart of its work. He's best known for championing the growth of critical race theory internationally, but you may also know him from the pioneering international journal Race, Ethnicity and Education, the leading peer-reviewed journal on race and inequality in education, of which he is the editor. He's also a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and of the Royal Society of Arts. And today, Professor Gilborn is author and editor of 13 books and more than 200 articles, chapters and reports. He's currently writing his seventh book, White Lies, Racism in Education and Society. Professor Gilborn, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Thank you. So first off, I'd love to understand how and why you personally wanted to become invested in this work. How and and, and when did all of this start for you? Um, It really goes back to my my own upbringing. Um, I'm white. I come from a a working class background in Nottingham and um, never considered uh, attending university at all. Um, I'm the first person in the family, not not just to go to university, but to actually stay in education beyond the legal requirement. Um, And the the year I was uh, supposed to be going into an apprenticeship as a plumber, um, there was a recession and plumbers weren't taking on. So I ended up doing A-levels and then going to the local university in Nottingham and um, really got energised in a sociology degree looking at inequalities. And at that point, there was very little written in sociology in this country about race and education. And I had a sense of how, as a a working class kid, um, uh, teachers' expectations of me kind of went through the floor when I opened my mouth. So I was sent to school in the school uniform and I was, you know, I was I was cleaned up and I I looked okay. But then when I spoke, you could kind of see the the teachers kind of their shoulders drooped. uh, Oh, we thought he was going to be clever. But then when they heard my accent, they knew that I wasn't. Um, so I kind of had a sense of schooling um, as, a, as a place where certain kids weren't getting a fair shake from the start. And um, when I started looking at the existing work around race inequality in education, there was very, very little. What there was at that time um, basically considered as, consisted of, of white people looking at statistics, saying that black kids did less well and then sitting in an armchair and trying to theorize from a distance. So they talked about things like intelligence, they talked about family structure, lots of deficit analysis that put the blame on the black kids. Whereas I knew, because I'd attended a a multi-ethnic comprehensive school, I knew that teachers treated black kids differently, but nobody'd done that research at that point. So that fired me up to do that research. Um, And then uh, that was it from that that moment. that's, that's really interesting because um, it, um, from what you're saying, and we'll come back to the conversation around white working class boys, actually, because I think it's a very topical one uh, right now, particularly in, in education. But um, given that you were also, from what you're saying, not being um, afforded 
the same uh, attention or a belief in your abilities um, as perhaps more middle class white boys. What was it specifically about race that interested you rather than class or was it both? Um, no, it was it was race because it was being ignored. Mm. Um, and I, I couldn't understand why it was that something that seemed so blindingly obvious to me um, wasn't being considered. Um, I mean, now, looking back on it, it's obvious because it serves the interests of, of white power holders to imagine that the problem must lie with the people experiencing the inequality. But at that point, I was just perplexed and um, and really wanted to shine a light on on these things because there are things that you can do about the black white gap in achievement by changing what happens in schools um, and and you know I wanted it sounds ridiculously naive but I wanted to improve the world I thought if we can actually get get a light shone on how these things happen inside schools we can we can change them we can do something about this this injustice and so what um what does white racial identity mean to you what does being white mean to you and has that changed since your your youth as this young boy in nottingham to now an adult you know having worked and lived in 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 various places across the uk um how what does being white mean well, I mean, I didn't think about it particularly when I was growing up, but but as I started to um, read sociology and 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 speak with other sociologists about these things, you 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 come to realise that actually, I mean, being a white person working on anti-racism is a a, a kind of an odd situation, but um, it gives me um, two ways in. One is that. I try and use my whiteness against whiteness. So my, my research uh, for my PhD was a qualitative study of a, of a comprehensive school. And I'm absolutely certain white teachers would say things to me as a white person that they wouldn't have dreamt of saying to someone of color. Um, so I, I was kind of getting the inside track on what the teachers really thought and how they thought these things worked out. And being raised as a as a white person, you you you're inside that psychology. Um, there's a an example in in one of my books where I use the front page of the Daily Express um, after the killing of uh, Jean Charles de Menendez in London, uh, where they put a picture of um, of him, an innocent man who who had multiple shots in his head. Um, because they thought he looked like a terrorist and the Express put his picture up against what turned out to have been a, um, a photoshopped version of, of one of the suspects. They'd made the, the suspect look whiter and the headline said something like um, why the police must never be prosecuted. And I know mm. that that headline translate for white people as, oh, look, they look the same. Mm. <laughs> so. Um, I, I kind of, before I had a language for, for, for whiteness, I understood it in terms of the kind of everyday racist assumptions and thinking that most white people engage in without realising it, because it's it's part of the fabric of, of our lives. It's when we turn on the TV, when we read a newspaper, when we listen to the radio. Um, it's It's not exceptional. It's not that one or two events that stand out. It's just the minute by minute fabric um, of the world that we inhabit. So as I started to get to grips with that, um, that, that, that became particularly important. And so in terms of your own um, definition of whiteness, do you refer to it in structural terms? And if so, um, you know, for, for people who aren't necessarily that familiar with, you know, what, what is structural whiteness? What, what does that mean? And does that mean that all white people are racist? Is that a useful way of thinking about the world? No, I don't think it is. I think, um, let me put it this way. Um, white people can, of course, white people can be anti-racist in the same way that, um, straight people 
uh, don't have to be homophobic and people without disabilities don't have to be ableist but on average they tend to be um, straight people tend towards homophobia white people tend towards racist assumptions because we're we're raised in situations where that kind of thinking um, generally isn't challenged and it actually works to our advantage so I view whiteness very much as a as a as a structural issue it's not that every single white person um, is the problem the problem is a, is a, a system of actions assumptions processes which on balance continually benefit white identified people now mm. white people can try and stand outside of that they can try and resist it but it's it's always a struggle but just as white people aren't always captured by whiteness so people of color can become part of whiteness so um, there are plenty of minoritized people who um, who speak for whiteness and who reinforce the kind of power dynamics that we see. And I mean, for me, one of the, the great pieces of writing in critical race theory is a, uh, a chapter by Derek Bell called The Rules of Racial Standing, which I always use with my students. And although this was written in the 90s, it, it's, it's just incredible um can you give uh, us a flavor well what what the what what the chapter does is to, is is it has a being saying to 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 um derek bell's character look i've been watching what you're doing you're trying to prosecute cases against racism but you just don't understand the rules because this you're assuming that the society operates largely on a basis of fair rules that are written down but it doesn't. It works on these unwritten rules of racial standing. And the rules basically show how people are judged on two things. How are they viewed by others in terms of their race? And do their actions and what they say support racism or work against it? So a white mm. identified person is generally seen as a better witness to racism, um, which is which is bizarre. But, um, you know, if um, a black academic says, um, well, look, there's there's racism in the system and that's why I haven't been promoted. People turn around and say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? You're just special pleading. You're playing the race card. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if a, if a black person says, oh, no, no, it's not to do with racism. Black boys don't succeed because they're lazy and because um, they've got a chip on their shoulder. If that's said by a black person, they're suddenly treated, they're, they're told that they're being courageous, they're speaking truth against political correctness. And despite usually having very little qualification for having said these things, they find themselves being promoted very rapidly. They'll be on the front page of newspapers. They might even be appointed to commissions by the government. Oh, we're definitely not talking about anyone in particular then. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, well, you can, you can, I mean, I actually once gave a paper at a US conference um, about the rules and, and used newspaper coverage of uh, Trevor Phillips. Um, and I compared what the Daily Mail said about him when um, he was leading the Commission for Racial Equality against what they said about him when he started talking about sleepwalking into segregation. Um, and this is the same man with the same background, but he went from being virtually public enemy number one to being this courageous pioneer who dared to speak the truth. Um, truth teller, yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. What, what, do, what does this reveal to us about whiteness? Well, oh, I think it reveals whiteness is incredibly complex. It will, it will, it will change at the drop of a hat when it when it suits the interests of white people. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a very very famous study called How the Irish Became White, yes. which looks at the the, the history of um, uh, the Irish diaspora to America, where Irish people were seen as being outside of the main uh, 
race group, but then by actually buying into white power, by, you know, particularly becoming um, active in local politics, becoming very active in police forces, the Irish moved inside whiteness in the US. Um, and I mean, that's a that's a, an amazing study because the, the thing about race, although race is a, a social construct and it changes over time and between different places, it's incredibly successful at pretending that it's a real natural fixed thing. So to actually talk about how a group can become white is a really powerful reminder that whiteness is not about um, the pigment of your skin. Whiteness is about how you're identified as being inside or outside of power. So the example that I gave um, a few minutes ago of the um, Brazilian um, who was who was uh, murdered by uh, the Metropolitan Police? This was Charles de Menezes, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. When 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 I was writing about that, um, I was working at the Institute of Education in London, and I had Brazilian colleagues who I gave the chapter where I write about that. I gave it to them to say, you know, give me some comment. Am I? Does this make sense? And they were saying, but Dave, he was he was white. You're saying that his 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 death was a was a racist act, but he's white, mm. and and I had to explain. Well, he wasn't white to the people that blew his head off. Mm. You know, he whiteness is in the eye of the beholder, and in in Brazil, whiteness and blackness are defined differently. Mm. Um, so Which at is, that uh, moment, he was outside of whiteness, and it cost him his life. Mm. And that, that's a really interesting point, actually, the way in which whiteness does look different in different contexts. And actually, that brings me on to the critical race theory conversation that um, I'm really keen to have with you, because obviously critical race theory has been in the headlines. We've had, you know, officials talking about how disastrous and dangerous it can be and, and warning teachers about, you know, not teaching this in schools and the damage it could cause. Um First off, because no one official has done it, what is critical race theory? <laughs> well, critical race theory is um, a set of concepts and ideas for understanding how uh, power operates along racialized lines, um, both historically and in contemporary society. It began in the 70s and 80s in US law schools, it moved into education and has gone international. Um, it's uh, it has some very clear uh, concepts which give you tools for identifying how can racism be operating in a situation where everyone says they're not racist. Um, mm. it, it, it's a really powerful set of ideas, but it, it constantly changes over time. Um, it's uh, for me it 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 completely revolutionised. Uh, my work and as 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 it continues to 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 challenge me with new ideas and ways of of working on this and so for those people who will say look crt or critical race theory was developed within an american framework within the context of american history you know and, and some critics do argue this they say well because of that it isn't fit for purpose here what do you say to those people who say the import of this theory isn't the right fit for UK race relations analysis? I, I say that it, that's completely ludicrous because um, I'm, I've, I've never heard someone quoting Foucault or Bourdieu be told, well, that's ridiculous. It might be like that in France, but it's not possibly like that in, in England. Or mm. a Marxist told, well, yeah, but he was German, wasn't he? Um, so, I, I mean, it's, it's also in, incredibly patronising because and revealing it patronizes critical race theorists in this country because it assumes that we haven't actually done some thinking and analysis of our own and it's also revealing because it shows that the critics that make that argument really haven't bothered to look at the work that British critical race theorists are doing because all of our work works with British data in the British context and quite often what we do is to take ideas that began in the States, apply them in the UK and refine them and take them into new directions. Um, of, of all the major kind of conceptual approaches in, in social theory, 
CRT is is the least dogmatic. It's changed a great deal since it began. There are what's called offshoot movements where um, the particular histories and identities of different groups are put to the fore. So there's Latino CRT, um, there's native CRT. Um, so uh, the idea that, well, be, because the, the, the key early writers are Americans, it can't have anything to tell us is is patronizing, it's revealing, but it also silences the fact that actually race relations in the UK and America are intimately interwoven. Um, mm. And, and it, it commits the same lie that was committed, you know, at the time of the, the slave trade, because there was this idea that, well, there weren't slaves in Britain. Well, actually, it's massively documented. Of course, there were slaves in Britain. We weren't just the funders and the beneficiaries in an economic sense. There were slaves in Britain. There were plenty of slaves in Britain. Um, so, so this idea that somehow we're a kind of we were part of the slave trade, but it was it was much more of an economic thing than a than a absolutely an disgusting genocidal industry. Yeah. Mm. Um, so you know it, that's a it's a it's a familiar argument and and it's one that we just have to keep revealing to be another lie. So on that note, what would you say are some of the uh, continuities and differences between whiteness in an American and a UK context? And I ask this because there are obviously there's lots of literature that comes to us from um, CRT in America. Um, and a lot of it is based, of course, on their domestic situation. Um, what if we're going to look at, at whiteness as, as a, a, a structure of power? Um, yeah. Do you how would how do they compare in the UK as to the US? Or is that even a comparison we can make? Yeah, I think it is. There are there are key differences in the US. There's a public language to talk about race, but discussions about class are, are much more difficult. And the situation is reversed in the UK. In the UK, people are very comfortable talking about social class, but to even raise race as an issue um, is viewed as being um, highly controversial, very often insulting. Um, that, that if you even raise race as an issue, um, you're, you're accused of um, attacking people. Um, so superficially, there are, there are very big differences. But I think at a more fundamental kind of structural level, there are huge similarities. I mean, in particular, if you look at um, the rise of Trump and a lot of the, the language and the emotions around Brexit, they're absolutely tapping into the same ideas of kind of um, white privilege, white entitlement um, and, and white fears, white fears about loss of power, loss of control, um, loss of the ability to say whatever I like. Um, and those things have been weaponized uh, in some very deliberate ways. Um, by the right, and they've been weaponized incredibly successfully. So would you say that the white right, um, to refer to the kind of what gets called, you know, either the far right, the alt right, um, white nationalists, are these people who are fearful of losing power? In, in essence, is that what you would identify as the motivating force for white nationalism? Yes, I think there's there's a whole range of, of kind of cross-cutting interests that are at work here. Um, so the 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 power that's being defended by um, large political organisations might be different to the ways in which that power is experienced by um, a teenage kid um, daubing graffiti on a school wall, um, but. At the heart of it is a is a kind of weaponization of this idea that you have things to be fearful of and they crystallize around your identity as a white person. So, um, you know, if you look on Twitter, whenever someone raises a criticism about a racial injustice, they're accused of race baiting. So the idea yeah. that pointing to that when you point to racism, you're baiting white people or you're being racist about white people. It's quite incredible. And I mean, it makes no logical sense because um, 
I very rarely come across white people who who admit to being racist, but I come across lots and lots of white people who don't like the fact that I write about white racism. Um, well, if they don't think that I'm writing about things that that um, that affect them, why are they so upset? They're upset because actually one of the things that CRT does is to reveal that actually racism saturates the society. Racism isn't that that strange, um, exceptional occasion where the skinhead does a racist attack, screaming abuse. Racism saturates those institutions where they say they appoint people on merit, where they're very smiley, where they dress nicely. They may even read The Guardian, but actually they work on the basis that some people are more likely to be criminals, less likely to excel, not likely to work hard. And those assumptions change the way that they deal with people. Mm, and I guess then presumably ultimately feed into existing and entrenched uh, forms of inequality. I, I want to uh, talk to you about this, this, these conversations that we're having about race as a society. Um, and I'm specifically thinking about debates around the so-called woke movement, but I suppose more generally regarding um, what I experience as a polarization of society around these topics. Do you think do you have any concerns about the way we talk about race today? Um, and, and are we getting it right? Well, I, I think, first of all, there's, there's no one right way of doing it. This always comes down to power. So, um, you know, one of the, the constant criticisms of, of, of critical race theory, which was also the criticism of anti-racism way back in the 80s, was, you know, you're stirring up trouble. Well, actually, we're not stirring up trouble. We're, we're trying to bring about greater equity. Um, there's, it's not a simple choice between talking about race and racism and having racial harmony, that if only we'd stop talking and campaigning about racist inequality, things would be fine. Well, they, they would be fine for white power holders, but the racist inequality would not just continue, it would get worse. So um, it might be uncomfortable for most white people to hear discussions about race because the, most white people have never really thought about whether they're personally invested in these kinds of inequalities. And when they're challenged to, to think about those things, very many white people feel threatened. They, they, they often don't have a language for it. So that's a very difficult situation. That's a complicated situation. So what we need is to find ways of talking about it and exploring it, um, but not just shutting it down. It's, oh. Are we saying that um, white racial identity is an inherently negative identity? And is that why people racialize as white bulk at having that uh, reflected back to us? Is it that there is nothing redeemable about that particularly so that particular social construct? And I'm thinking in that sense of an article that you wrote called We Need to Talk About White People, actually, in which you argue uh, that because of the uniquely powerful influence on economic, cultural and social systems, white people can't be treated as just another ethnic group. Yeah. Um, can you break that down for us? Yeah. So um, a recent development in this is what I mean about whiteness being complex and it, and, it, and it being very flexible. So if you look at some of the classic texts about whiteness that were written 20 years ago, they say that one of the key things about whiteness is that it pretends not to be a colour, that it, it kind of hides in the background, that it's, it's people of colour who are different and exotic, but whiteness is just normality. But whiteness has adapted. So as um, different groups have mobilized around their identity, white people now will will proudly proclaim themselves. You have Lawrence Fox um, saying that it's racist to suggest that as a white man, he has privilege. So they will, the, the right is very good at always taking the language of the left and colonizing it. Um, and there's been a movement uh, in recent years whereby um, there's a there's a pretense that it's an academic discussion, but it's actually it comes from the guts. It's it's a pretense that, well, there are these other groups 
arguing for, for respect for their identity and their rights. What about white people? Um, what about our rights? And so um, there's an argument which David Goodhart um, at Policy Exchange has been promoting, which is, well, all white people want is to be treated like any other ethnic group. So I when, have seen that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, David Goodhart is now a commissioner at the uh, Commission for Equality and Human Rights, which is another way in which the government actually hollowing out what, what looked like the protections for, for social justice by putting a guy in there who argues that when white people do things to protect their interests as white people, that we mustn't call that racist. Well, that's the textbook definition of racism. And white people are not just any other ethnic group. White people are the group that invented race as a, as a system which labels people on the basis of these characteristics and then enforces different treatment. So it's absolutely ludicrous to imagine that they're just another group. They're, they're, they're the inventors and the beneficiaries of this machinery, this, this, this racist structure. So to deal with that, we have to recognise that they're not just another group. Now, mm. I'm not suggesting, and, and people that have made this argument, the argument to abolish whiteness, they're not suggesting that we need to do away with white people and that there's there aren't any white people who are absolutely fantastic, warm, loving, generous human beings. What we're saying is that actually, if if you're if you're white and you're working with communities, whether they're organised around class inequality, poverty, disability, gender identity, whatever it is, that's absolutely fantastic. But actually, historically, I'm not aware of any example where people have organised on the basis of whiteness. And the result hasn't been violent exclusion and appropriation of other people's rights and property. So whiteness itself is an invention which 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 works negatively for for other minoritized groups. So mm. mobilize around anything you want, but don't mobilize around whiteness because that's that you're 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 mobilizing around something which is by definition exclusive and destructive. And do you think part of this is, you know, without excusing it, but in trying to understand where it's coming from, that minoritized groups have had to dig so deep to uh, reassert a pride in identities which have been denigrated for so long by the dominant uh, culture that as those identities are increasingly um, understood in their true value and worth, or at least beginning to be, I would hope, um, is there uh, something about the the white people within society looking at that growing pride in an identity which has for so long been um, held down and saying, well, where do we fit into this picture? And I suppose linked to that, is there then, uh, you know, is there a danger then that they're then looking for a pride in their identity, which then could fall back on white pride? Yeah. Or is, and is and is there a space there for it to be instead European heritage? Is there anything redeemable within European identities which people could source if they are looking for a form of? Um, I suppose pride in their identity, or, or, or should we be looking beyond that? No, I think oh, I, I think it's about um, excavating the past and, and finding out about the the figures that you identify with, who 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 have been, you know, forces for good and unity and progress in the past. The problem is that whiteness. Um, as it's packaged and sold to people at the moment, is is largely about a kind of elite whiteness. Um, so the argument about you know should we be tearing down statues of of people that benefited from from a trade in human beings, you know, apart from replacing them with 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 diverse statues, let's replace them with 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 some some statues of of white working class heroes, people that fought and died for greater representation. Um, it's not about black and white. It's about a different view of humanity. But so, so you know, 
if 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 you want pride in a kind of working class heritage, then find pride in working class heritage, not in a version of whiteness, which is spun to you by largely by a, a, a kind of right wing elite who benefit from the the chaos that ensues. Um, and that brings me nicely to one of the conversations I wanted to ask you about, which is the one around white racial identity at the moment, uh, which seems to be focused. I mean, I've broken it down in three types. I think there's, the first is a kind of white guilt, white privilege conversation, which I think can be or sound quite polarizing, at least in certain uh, forums. Um, the second, I would say, is white nationalism, uh, uh, you know, a white extremist, if you like. And the third is one that's really been um, getting a lot of attention, especially in policy circles. And that's the idea that the white working class, uh, specifically uh, white working class boys who, who do, um, uh, don't, don't do particularly well in the educational system, um, have somehow been left behind, that white pupils from poor communities, boys in particular, uh, perform worse on average. Um, and, and we've heard people say worse on average than most other ethnic backgrounds. But I do want to state for accuracy's sake um, that it's not white working class groups who are the most disadvantaged in education. It's actually gypsy, Roma and traveller groups who have the worst outcomes of all at all stages, actually, of their educational experiences. Um, and, you know, without naming names, although feel free to, uh, if you'd like, one academic uh, who you might know gave evidence to the Commons Cross-Party Education Committee recently telling the MPs that the national conversation in the last 10 years had become much more consumed with other groups and that disadvantaged white families feel they're not afforded the same rep recognition, respect and esteem. Um, some people have gone so far as saying there's a demonization of the white working class. Um, what is your view on the this particular conversation around whiteness and the white working class? Well, I would say that the person that told the select committee that um, obviously hasn't been paying attention to education policy for the last decade, which has actually been entirely distorted by a fake argument that white working class children are the lowest achieving group in schools. That argument has been around since 2008. It's used to, at best, um, present race equality moves as unnecessary in schools. And at worst, it's been used to argue that um, attempts to bring about race equality have actually harmed white kids. Um, one thing that's very clear is that if you're white and living in poverty, you don't get a fair shake in education. That's very, very clear. Um, and that should be attended to. But what's happened in the last decade is that there's been some uh, misuse of statistics to um, to actually silence a discussion about wider race inequality. I'm going to have to get a little bit technical now. Um, so Go when it. right, well, when the headlines, as they have done for ten years, so I don't know how this idea that this argument's been silenced. It's actually been deafening um, for the last ten years. The argument has been that white working class children are the lowest achieving group in schools and they'll often as as you've already said they completely ignore uh, gypsy roma and traveler kids who who are are way um further back in terms of every meaningful measure of achievement and experience in schools but the dominant argument has been white working class kids are the lowest achieving group now when you read those arguments white working class 60% of adults in British in Britain think you're talking about them. 60% of adults in Britain think of themselves as working class. But the statistics that have been used to generate those headlines aren't talking about 60% of kids. They're talking about the 13% of children who receive free school meals. Now that's a measure of poverty. And we mm. absolutely, that, that group, needs every help that it can get, but it's 13% of the population, not 60%. And in fact, a, a colleague of mine, Claire Crawford, has, has done work on this. Actually, white kids of all the major ethnic groups, they're the least likely to be on free school meals. It's about one in 10 white kids. So the whole of education policy debate for the last 10 years has been skewed to focus on 10% 
of white children. And the ridiculous thing is, it hasn't actually benefited that group at all, because it's been a rhetorical tool by which policymakers have shut down discussion of race inequality by pretending that it doesn't exist. If you look at the 87% of kids who don't get free school meals, then there are plenty of groups that do less well than white British kids, black Caribbean kids, uh, Pakistani students, dual heritage kids with one white, one black Caribbean parent. They're less likely to excel in school. They're much more likely to be permanently excluded. But all of that is written out of the conversation by these headlines that misrepresent one in 10 as if they were six in 10. And this is not an accident or a misunderstanding, by the way. Um, mm. In 2014, um, I presented to an education select committee that were looking at white working class underachievement. And I went through all of these arguments with them and said, look, this doesn't make sense, because if you're going to call free school meal kids um, working class, you're basically saying that the vast majority um, are middle class. I mean, for white kids, it'd be about nine out of 10 would be middle class. And in their report, they actually say, oh, Professor Gilborn presented this argument. And and yeah, that's that. Of course, that would be ridiculous to say everybody is 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 middle class. But then two pages later, they say, actually, on the basis of being pragmatic, we're going to keep using the same terminology. And then what happened was when they presented their report on the underachievement of kids who live in poverty, they used the phrase white working class and we had yet another round of headlines about why are white working class kids failing. Mm. So this is not an innocent mistake. It's not a misreading of data. This is this is an analysis. It actually started in 2008 under a Labour government and it has been used year after year since. Mm. And it is it is distorting education priorities and it is damaging kids of all ethnicities, because actually policymakers haven't shown any seriousness, even about raising the attainments of the kids that are featured in those statistics. And what, and what do you say to the people who are um, sympathetic to that argument, but will say, um, particularly, I think, voices on the left who've come out and said, well, the problem is the focus on race. We should just be focusing on class. If we just said working class children and we focus on the working class, we wouldn't be dividing them. What do you say to that? Well, that the class inequality is huge, that it does need addressing, but it won't address racism. Uh, you know, uh, are we saying that we can only deal with one inequality at a time? Mm. Because if we are, then then in a society like ours, we're never going to get round to race because it's never going to benefit the white folks that are making the decisions. The argument that we need to focus on class, um, of course, we need, you know, I'm sure many of the people you've spoken to have, have talked about intersectionality, which is an idea, by the way, that was coined by an African-American woman critical race theorist, Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, mm. So, you know, yes, we have to look at how different inequalities intersect. And sometimes they add up one on top of the other. And sometimes one element of inequality will actually work against another. But it's complicated and mm. we can't do everything at one time. So we have to constantly check ourselves that we aren't making things worse while we're trying to make things better. But the idea that somehow anti-racists are making things worse by by dragging the spotlight away from class and that class inequality would somehow miraculously disappear if only we'd shut up about racism is ridiculous. It's patronising and it's racist. It basically mm. says to, to people that aren't white, you need to get to the back of the line because you know what? Your interests are not as significant as ours. And it ignores the fact that I was involved in research with um, colleagues, Nicola Rollock, Stephen Ball and Carol Vincent, where we did the largest piece of qualitative research with black Caribbean middle class parents. Mm -hmm. And we particularly focused on middle class parents because, first of all, they'd booked the trends. They'd succeeded. We were talking to doctors, teachers, lawyers, people that had been successful. And we talked to them about their own education. How did they succeed? And we talked to them about how they navigate the system now as parents. And almost every one of them 
pointed out that racism is still a hugely important factor in their life. It affects whether they get promoted at work, whether their work is valued. And it's an issue that they deal with every time they go into their children's school. So the fact that you're, you know, anybody listening to this whose kids don't get free school meals will know that that doesn't mean that they've they've got a golden ticket. Just because you're not living in poverty doesn't mean that everything is fantastic. Mm. Um, and racism, the race inequalities are actually wider for many minoritized groups when you look beyond that, that group that live in poverty at the much wider um, kind of uh, population. Um, and, you know, the idea that, that, that somehow by, by, by focusing on racism, we're detracting from a more important inequality um, is, I think, reprehensible. And, and so you, you probably will have heard this. I've heard a, a few variants of this um, kind of counter, which is, you know, when I, I was at university, I did my master's in, in America and there was a, a young woman on my, on my course who grew up um, in, in acute poverty in America, white, white working class American, you know, had been raised on a trailer with no running water. Um, no toilet, no oven, um, you know, in her words, you know, they, they, their meals were cooked in a kettle. I mean, the levels of poverty that you uh, are only aware of, of if you really know what uh, stands behind the facade of, of the American dream. Um, and and her, her point, which she would raise regularly um, in conversations on race was, you know, I'm, a, I lived in acute poverty. What, what privilege did I have as a white person that others didn't I struggled just as much as my black neighbors um and I mean I have my own view on that but I'd be interested to mm. hear what you would say to you know poorer white uh, working class people who'd say well look you know I've struggled my whole life I'm still struggling I don't hold white privilege well I think that that in that sense the word privilege gets gets misunderstood and, and, and misused. So it, it, it's not in any way to suggest that if you're white, you've, you've, you've got a credit card that you never have to pay off. Um, of course, there are white people who, who struggle against tremendous odds, but it's to say that race is, is that additional level. It's, a, it's another area of inequality, which if you're white, you don't face. So, you know, um, I don't know what part of, of America um, she came from, but if, if it was a, one of the southern states. It was. Her, well, so her family doesn't have a history of having to worry about the men in the family being executed by a mob because somebody said they looked at a white woman differently. Now, that's that's what white privilege looks like in some U.S. states, that actually um, your life, your um, your 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 entire existence can be conditional on not offending white people. Now, that's not to say that because you've got a white skin in the southern states, um, you're driving around in a, an enormous Cadillac. Um, but it's to say that there are levels of inequality that as a white person you are not aware of. So it. it, it one of the things that characterizes um, those kind of discussions about, well, isn't it really about race? It's not really about any single thing. Um, but to 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 argue that, well, actually, class affects more people in different ways. So that's the one we should focus on just buys into an idea that huge swathes of the population just have to put up with huge injustices um, because they don't happen to have been born into the group that's viewed as as white, and that's just disgusting. That mm. that cannot be. We have to be able to to have a more complicated argument than well, class will solve everything. Because mm. class doesn't solve everything. If you got rid of all class inequality in the education system overnight, it would still be a racist system. There would still be systemic persistent racial inequalities across the education system. Mm. Now, I'm actually related to education, an article of yours which caught my eye was one called Race, IQ and Public Policy, in which you discussed the return of racist ideas about intelligence and genetics. Mm. So is race science really making a comeback here in the UK? Yes, yes, it is. But um, 
uh, racism is, as I've already said, it, it's it's complex and it adapts. So um, uh, the kind of arguments that used to be um, put forward in terms of uh, race inequality and differences in in the kind of, supposedly it's constantly debunked, but they keep coming back to these arguments. Well, what about if it was to do with genetics? And we say, well, there's there's no reliable evidence that it ever has been. And race is a social construction. So why do you keep looking for something that can't possibly be there? And we're told that we're trying to silence legitimate debate. And then in 20 years ago, you would have arguments that said, well, look, we have research here that shows that black people are genetically predisposed to be less intelligent than whites. Um, you can't say that now because it's recognised as being disgusting and obviously racist. So the people that push for arguments about genetics being important in education don't address race anymore. They stay away from it. And um, when anti-racists such as uh, myself point out that actually all of the things that they're suggesting schools should do, we know that those things will lead to black students being disproportionately put in um, low grade lessons with less experienced teachers, with worse resources. Uh, they say, but we're not talking about race. You're just being crude. You're just you're just insulting us. So they've learned new tactics. So, I mean, in, in one of my papers, I, I, I show an example. Well, the, the classic example is Robert Plowman, who um, is the darling of uh, Dominic Cummings and the right in this country for his statements about a supposedly genetic basis to intelligence. Um, he he won't engage in discussions about whether what he's saying relates to race inequality. Whereas in the 1990s, he, he put his name to an article in the Wall Street Journal, which described the kind of claims that were in a book called The Bell Curve, it, that article called The Mainstream Science. And one of the, the bullet pointed statements in that article, which he signed up to, said that as a group, black people are less intelligent than white people. And that fundamentally, that was an inequality that wasn't changeable because it had a genetic basis. Now, I'm not aware that he's ever recanted on that. Um, when I've heard him challenged on it, he says, well, I was angry at the time. People were saying nasty things about my field. Um, it's a lot more complicated. Um, actually, this the, we keep about every 10 years, this whole argument about race and genetics uh, comes up. And it's an argument that only ever benefits white power holders because it imagines that the the reason for these persistent inequalities is a problem with the people that experience the inequalities, not a problem with the system. Um, and actually, if you if you were to take the um, the racist IQist argument at face value, it, within it, um, it, it it has its own redundancy because even the people that will argue that black people are genetically less likely to be intelligent, they will say, but. It's only an average. It, it doesn't tell you about every single black person. And mm. so, so well, if, if it's only an average and it doesn't tell you about everyone, of what possible use is it? It's, mm. it's, it, it, it's, it's only use is as a smokescreen to pretend that systemic racial injustice in the education system isn't our fault as white people, as power holders, as the people that, that go to public school, who succeed in, in, in the highest status universities. It's not our fault, it's your fault. And we're really sorry, but there's no point in us spending lots and lots of money on it because it's your genes. Uh, yeah. And there's really not a lot that we can do, but we'll build second grade schools for you and you can you can attend them. I mean, th it's the same arguments at root that have been going on for, for for decades, but but each time it, it reappears, it takes on a slightly new twist. Mm, it's just the modern, the more recent incarnation of it, by the sounds of it. So, yeah. um, we're kind of coming to um, the end uh, of this uh, the, of this chat, but I wanted to um, hit you with a few quick fire rounds, if that's okay. Um, uh, what is white guilt, and is it is that a useful term? Well, I, I think it's um, another one of these uh, invented terms. Um, 
white guilt is used um, in politics uh, to say that when we talk about how racism has this this huge systemic character, um, that it makes even nice white people feel guilty about being white and it stops them um, from making a positive contribution. I think that's absolutely ludicrous. It's another um, invented um, excuse to, to put in the armory of white people who want to say that they want to excuse themselves from doing anything about racism. Um, oh, you're, you're trying to make white kids feel guilty. Um, it's a ludicrous thing. Anti-racist teaching doesn't make white people feel guilty. It tries to educate them about the system that they're involved in and help them to behave uh, more ethically. Um, mm. You know, way back when I started, um, my, my research has always tended to um, attract controversy. And I used to get attacked by um, other sociologists who said that I was blaming teachers by pointing out how things like setting viability and different disciplinary actions in schools were, were always disadvantaging black students. Um, and I pointed out that actually some of my biggest advocates were teachers. Anti-racist teachers want to know what they can do inside their schools to actually make things better. So mm. anti-racism isn't about white guilt and it isn't about blaming teachers. It's about trying to understand how these things work and take them apart. So what should white people invested in anti-racism be cautious about when it comes to their own whiteness? Well, they need to listen to other people because there, there are things that as white people we don't know about race and racism. So, um, you know, when I've worked with successful anti-racist schools, um, they've they've gone out and they've got information from other educators in other schools, in universities. They've talked with different community groups. Um, invite those groups in. Talk to students. Minoritized students will know a lot about racism in your school that hasn't been recognized by the teachers. Um, and, you know, there's there's lots of examples of how this is done. It's not it's not rocket science. But what it takes is a commitment to actually change the school. If, if you're at the school or the university or, or the legal practice or the, the hospital, whichever institution you're in, if you're going to commit to having a serious debate about race and racism, that means that you're going to change things because you can't have a serious conversation about racism that doesn't change the institution. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world? Do you believe it's possible or even desirable? Um, I th it, it, one of the things that really annoys me about universities um, and late night chat shows is that they will engage in endless arguments about hypotheticals. Um, one of the key things that critical race theory says is, look, you know what? Let's deal with the world as it is. It's messy. It's material. Um, but let's deal with that. So in terms of the reality of the world, um, a kind of post-racial situation is a hell of a long way off. We could argue endlessly about whether it's even conceptually possible, whether or not once race is, is invented, it can ever be done away with. I don't see any, um, any real benefit to having those kind of hypotheticals. Whether we can do away with racism entirely, I, I, I see it as a moot point. Let's, let's try and do away with it as much as we can. Let's let's mm. try and do something beyond racism. Let's not let's not waste time with um, terribly clever hypothetical arguments. Let's do something about the messy, dirty, unjust world that we actually inhabit. Thank you so much. Well, on that note, um, we're going to have to end this uh, conversation. Uh, it was really, really great listening to you. Um, I Just for the listeners who would like to uh, connect with your work, I know that you've got an upcoming book, uh, White Lies, Racism in Education and Society. Do we have a sense of uh, when and where people might be able to purchase it? Or is there another book you'd like to direct people towards? Um, and is there a particular site that you would like them to purchase it from uh, <laughs> rather than maybe the usual suspects? Right. Well, um, 
well, the, the book White Lies uh, has been delayed by the pandemic because um, universities have had to adjust what they do and the time that I'd set aside to try and write it disappeared. Um, but that I, I'm really excited to write that because every single chapter is going to look at a particular lie that benefits white power holders like white white working class kids are the lowest achieving group mm. um but until that that one lands the the best book i've written was published in 2008 it's called racism and education coincidence or conspiracy and um that was one of the first studies to to use crt to understand um racism in all its forms in in the english system um so you can get that um Otherwise, if you're interested in in any of my ideas, um, the the site ResearchGate, most of my papers are available for free from that. So if you type into Google ResearchGate, one word, and then David Gilborn, it'll take you to my stuff. And the vast majority of it is is openly accessible. And if there's anything on there that you can't get, as long as it's not a book, because I don't have PDFs of the books. If there's a paper on there that isn't already available, um, there's a button where you you press it and say, "Can I have a copy?" Uh, and I send you a, a copy of it. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure that we will be taking advantage of that. Thank you so much, Professor Gilborn, um, for your time. I'd like to thank everyone who was listening to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do join us uh, next time for the next episode and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.